could see the King in all his beauty. Help us to see the glory of Christ as a simple prayer we pray today. Amen. What's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? It's a jarring statement made in an otherwise jovial and light-hearted atmosphere spoken by the late R.C. Sproul during a conference Q&A in answer to a question that had been posed. The question was this. If God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Apparently, they'd had a question like this just before. And so Sproul said, Time out. Time out. God's punishment for Adam was so severe, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after that God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him and whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? In our depravity and our presumption as a fallen race, we think that we see clearly enough to be able to say who God should be and how God should be allowed to act. And we judge the God of Scripture by our own definition and our own version of Him. And in Scripture, in John, last week we started looking at the worst moment of this kind of pride in human history, in the trial, when men took their place as judge over the Son of God. This week, as we read, we see how it continues, this madness and mistreatment and the sentencing of Christ. One of the earliest Christian apologetics was to explain to Jewish people. They would say, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why then was he so widely rejected, even by the religious leaders? Why was he not accepted by the people of Israel? John, in his gospel, no doubt writes in part to answer this question, right? Off the bat in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And we see time and time again the same rejection throughout the gospel culminating now in the cross despite the evidence about Jesus. John likes to make use of irony in his gospel and especially here around the crucifixion narrative to show that there is glorious truth to be seen if you see with the eyes of faith behind these events, in these events. Even in the words of people who speak better than they could ever know. And John's purpose is an invitation to us. 
He's welcoming us to see what they could not see. There are many ways that you could approach this passage. And the way I've chosen to approach is quite simple. It is a heavy passage. It is a serious passage. But we're going to work together to draw out and to feast upon the glorious Christology that's available for us today. We're going to see it with eyes of faith. We're going to see four things. Glory in His humiliation. Glory in His silence. Glory in judgment, and then finally, glory even in rejection. Number one, the glory in Christ's humiliation. Pilate knows that Jesus is an innocent man, and he wants to free him. And so he first takes this tactic. He brings up a custom that they had around Passover time where he says, I will release to you a prisoner. And so he he says, should I release Jesus or Barabbas? And that should have been an easy decision. Barabbas was a a thief, a murderer. The other synoptics tell us a failed insurrectionist. Surely they would choose Jesus. But the plan backfires and they cry out, release for us Barabbas. And so Pilate's tactic changes a little bit. Luke tells us that he told them, I'll punish him and release him. And here in John, it seems like he's thinking, if I present to them a, a beaten, a harmless, a pathetic humiliated Jesus. Maybe that'll make the choice easier. In verse 4 and 5 of chapter 19, it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Throughout history, painters have tried to recapture this moment. Christ led out in his humiliation before the crowds. It's often captioned these paintings with the phrase in Latin, from the the Latin translation, Ecce homo, behold the man. One such painting was rendered into a a fresco in a Spanish church that stood for about a hundred years. It was the pride of, of that church. And in that time, deterioration of the painting had led to flaking and fading. And one of the parishioners in that church took it upon herself to restore it. So she bought the paint. I think she was an amateur painter. And um, her attempt is now famous. It's actually been dubbed Eke Mono, Behold the Monkey. At first, the townspeople were up in arms. And this poor old lady suffered a great deal of anxiety at the thought of the laughingstock that she had made of that painting of Christ's face. But then the crowds began to come. Tourists began to visit this quiet little Spanish town in their droves. And in the space of a few short months, they had ten times their usual annual amount of visitors. And so her error was chalked off as ultimately harmless and beneficial to the town. Pilate, I believe, similarly intends to parade a humiliated and harmless Jesus in order to pacify this crowd. His tone is mocking. Behold the man. His intended meaning. Here's the one you find so dangerous. Can't you see he's harmless and ridiculous? 
Maybe they'll laugh a little bit or maybe they'll be moved to sympathy. Write him off in indifference and accept his release. And yet this is dripping for John with irony as Pilate speaks better than he could possibly understand. This is exactly what John wants us to do. Behold the man. In his humiliation, there's a glory that is unparalleled in the history of the world, a glory no man has ever had. It's the invitation that the, the painters who painted were, were inviting us to see. Behold him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Word who became flesh. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, writes, This man was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, even while they're mocking in the very disgrace, pain, weakness, and brutalization that Pilate advanced as suitable evidence that he was a judicial irrelevance. God had become a man, and his figure had become marred, his appearance Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And yet, in this moment, in this moment, there was nothing in all the world more worthy of our love and esteem. Verse 1 says that Pilate had had him flogged, the man that he found innocent. Now the Romans, they administered three different kinds of beatings, three different kinds of floggings. They got more and more severe depending on the, the nature of the crime. We know from Mark's gospel and the word used that, that Pilate had ordered the most severe of those floggings before sending Jesus to the cross. In this flogging, the victim would be stripped and tied to a post be flogged by several torturers until those torturers became exhausted or they were called off by a superior officer. The instrument they used would be a whip with leather thongs that would, had been fitted with pieces of bone or pieces of metal that would tear into flesh. Eyewitnesses from this time said it was so severe that often the victims, you could see their bones See entrails with how deep they went. People often died just from the flogging, never even making it to the cross. This was the reason, by the way, Jesus couldn't carry his own cross and why he, was, he died so quickly on the cross. Some scholars believe it's difficult to believe that Pilate would order this kind of beating while he's still trying to free him. I don't know, I think Pilate wants to present a, a particularly hu humiliated Christ. So they say, maybe this was just one of the two less severe beatings and he received the, the more severe later on after sentencing was passed. Whether it was one or two floggings that Jesus received, it, it's hard, isn't it, to stomach the thought of what he endured. In verse 2, the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns that they push onto his head and temple. A mock crown that soaked his face with blood. And the symbolism is rich, isn't it? When Adam sinned, 
when the world was plunged into curse? What was the symbol of that curse and frustration? It was the thorn. Jesus' crown is a crown of cursing. And they mocked him. They took turns. They put him in a purple robe and they mockingly knelt before him and got up saluting, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him in the face. And the Gospels tell us they spat upon him. They gave him a reed scepter that they then grabbed and beat him on the head with driving those thorns deeper into his head. But as a true king, he was doing in those moments for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christ took our curse upon his own head. He would go to the cross and become our sin. That we could become the righteousness of God. See, unbeknownst to those soldiers and Pilate and those who watched on in these moments, there is more glory in their mock crown than any glory that any other crown has ever seen. Arrayed in all the jewels and precious metals of man. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Behold the man. You speak better than you know, Pilate. Behold the God-man, the one humiliated to reconcile God and man. Their treatment is wicked and severe, but His glory is resplendent. There was glory in the humiliation of Christ. Secondly, we see glory in His silence. Pilate's attempt to have Jesus released fails in verse 6. Instead of a lump in their throat, or instead of casual indifference in the acceptance of his release, they're egged on. Good start, Pilate. Now go all the way. Crucify him, they shout. In frustration, he retorts, you take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. But undeterred, the Jewish leaders throw in another accusation in verse 7. We have a law, they say. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Here's their theological problem. To the accusation of sedition, they add the accusation of blasphemy. Verse 8 is interesting. It says Pilate is even more afraid. We're not entirely sure what he's afraid of or what's going on here. We can't be sure. I think... He's hearing this with superstitious ears. He's hearing this with Roman ears. They had a, a pantheon of gods, demigods. Remember his wife had come to him with a, she said, I had a dream about this man. Have nothing to do with what's going on here. There's a gravitas to Jesus. There's something unsettling about him for sure. And Pilate's just had the man beaten and ridiculed. So he runs back to question Jesus saying, where, where are you from? And Jesus knows that at this point, Pilate is controlled by his fears. That fear has taken over him. His love for his position, what he stands to lose, has completely taken over him. He's acting now only to save his skin, to protect his own interests. But unlike Pilate, Jesus is not controlled by fear. He's not sullen here before his fate but he's braced with a courage the world has never seen before. And Jesus responds in silence. 
Every word that Jesus has uttered so far before Caiaphas, before Annas, different tribunals, before Pilate has had a purpose, but not once has that purpose been to help him escape what is coming. Not once has it been to save himself, and now he will accomplish his purpose and fulfill Scripture with silence. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, it prophesies. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The charges have been laid, treason and blasphemy. And the irony here is that the very thing that they accuse him of is what they themselves are guilty of in this moment. They are guilty of treason against the king in their final and frantic cries and clamoring to have him killed. In verse 15, they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. That's right, for you have betrayed your king. And they're guilty of blasphemy and despising and denying the very Son of God. And their charge against him is what they themselves are guilty of, and it's what we have all been guilty of. When we refused to submit to the King of Kings, when we rebelled, when we all, like sheep, went astray, each to our own way, we have been guilty of treason. When we've said in our hearts, I will be my own God, or I will create a God of my own choosing, we are guilty of blasphemy. And yet there he is, the innocent, the only righteous king, the faithful one, the Lamb of God, silent before his accusers, and accused of our sin, takes upon himself our guilt and our shame. Christ will go to the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. He will die for the ungodly. Matthew Henry, in commenting, said he stood mute at this bar that we might have something to say at God's bar. Is his silence not glorious? It is the cause of our singing and the cause of our rejoicing. And it is even more glorious by what follows. In verse 10, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Literally, he says, to me, you will not speak. Don't you know who you're dealing with? I have power over your life. And here, Pilate's never been more mistaken and more blind. It's not Jesus' estimation of Pilate that's off, but Pilate's estimation of Jesus. And yet, this is how many approach him. We approach God in our fallen humanity, with the same attitude of Pilate. So used to be people being impressed by us and living our whole lives to impress others, and then troubled when God is not impressed, not impressed with your self-righteousness and justifications. We come to Christ with Pilate, like Pilate saying, to me, you won't speak. You won't answer my philosophical questions or play to my tune, dance to the beat of my drum. Who do we think we are? 
Do you have any idea who you're dealing with, Pilate? The one silent before you is the Word of God, the one who spoke and stars took their place. Heaven and earth obey His voice. And Jesus says to him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate, what's happening now? These events are not about your verdict. This is about what my Father is doing. This was the comfort, wasn't it, for the early church when they're facing persecution. They gather together and they pray. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. If you're an outsider looking in, you think, is Jesus a victim of Pilate's fear here? No, he's in the hands of his father. The cross establishes this truth over our lives. It establishes this comfort This is what Joseph said to his brothers after he suffered at their hands. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we look at the cross. We look at the darkest moment in human history. And we know this to be true, that we worship a sovereign God. We are not promised that sorrow will not come, but we are promised that everything is in his hands. And the cross makes clear, doesn't it, that the love of Christ, the love of God, is the one thing that will never forsake us. Christ is silent in His trial that we would, that, that we would have something to say before the Father, something to appeal, something to cry. And, and He is not silent. Right now, He is not silent, but He is making intercession. Right now, child of God, He is your advocate And nothing can shake him. Nothing will frustrate his prayer. Nothing will surprise him. And nothing will derail the father's children because there's nothing that is stronger than he is. As we sing, does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those he loves? He does. There is glory in his silence. Thirdly, we see glory in judgment. From verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Neither the charge of sedition nor of blasphemy is held up in Pilate's eyes, and yet the Jews come with this final statement with its veiled threat, are you a friend of Caesar's? What are you going to do about this man? We saw last week Pilate's precarious situation with Rome, right? And the Jews drive this knife home. How are you going to explain to Caesar if you let this man go? And we tell him about it. Pilate is a tortured soul. He's cornered by his own insecurities and by his lust for power. He knows the right, and yet what controls him but the fear of men? The fear of loss drives him to commit murder. Pilate takes the judgment seat to pass verdict against the one to whom all authority is given, the one who is the, the one true judge. The fear of man 
trumps the fear of God in Pilate's life. What about you? What controls you? Have you ever compromised what you knew what was right out of fear? Have you ever just gone along with the crowd, avoided saying what needed to be said because you feared their judgment? Ed Welch said this. He said, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. This is, honestly, this is one of my weekly prayers. I pray this every week. God, do not allow the fear of men to derail my ministry and derail my calling. Cowardice causes havoc in the church. It causes havoc in our families. Men, are you, are you leading? Are you leading with courage in the lives of your children? It derails our Christian work. The fear of men derails our mission. And it is a battle we must fight. And we begin, we begin here by doing exactly this, beholding the man. When Pilate is controlled by fear, Jesus is not. He submits himself to the judgment of men. He will go to face judgment for our sin. He is obedient in this to the Father above all else. He goes in courage for the love and rescue of men and the glory of God. Pilate sits on the judgment seat and sentences Christ to die, but Jesus lays down his life willingly, his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat to redeem fallen men. The fearlessness of our Savior produces a people who are able to love and fear God. And that's why we say and must say, it is the love of Christ that compels us. It is the fear of God that moves us forward. There's glory in His judgment. And finally, we see glory in His resurrect. I mean, in, in His rejection even. Glory in rejection. Think with me for a moment. Just try to imagine. You're sitting in the darkness. You're awaiting a fate that you know is coming. Crucifixion. You hear the commotion begin. The crowds are roaring. The chant begins and begins to grow. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him, you hear. They're in a frenzy. They're shouting for blood. A little later, he hears footsteps in the corridor. The guards are approaching. And then the sound of key and lock. His heart goes cold. The time has come. They grab him. They pull him out. They lead him out of the fortress into the streets, into blinding light, and they unshackle him. They push him away and say to him, you're free to go. Get out of here. Dazed, the man walks out into the streets. The city, the whole city is an uproar. And then slowly the truth emerges. Another will die in his place. Jesus will be crucified while Barabbas goes free. The shouts were not for him. Away with him, crucify him, not for the robber, not for the murderer, but for the one who had fed the 5,000, who had welcomed children. Come to me. 
who had healed the sick and the lame and raised the dead. Surely, Pilate thought, this was an easy decision. Free Jesus and kill Barabbas. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Behold your king, he eventually says, mocking. Away with him, crucify him, they shout. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. And they reject the one true king. The name Barabbas is an interesting name. It, it comes from two words. The word Bar, which means son, and the word Abba, which means father. It's the most nondescript name in the Bible. It literally means son of a father. And in Barabbas, there is glory as well. The son of the father will die, and the son of a father will go free. Now, Barabbas alone can say that Christ took his actual physical place on the cross, but every son of a father who looks to Christ with faith knows that Jesus took, his, took their place. We've been spared a fate worse than the one that Barabbas avoided. So surely ours should be the greater all. We should be dumbfounded. We are Barabbas. You and I. And our crime was the crime that, of those shouting for his death. We're there in the crowds with them. One theologian said, unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking masses full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and the depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. This is the heart of the gospel, summarized in this one idea that we see in Barabbas, the idea of substitution. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. From here they will lead him away, outside the city, to the place of curse for you and for me. And there's no event in all of history that's more significant and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it casts its shadow over history and it casts its shadow even over us today. And John would have you see it. See him there in awe and wonder. Do you see the glory of this passage? Do you see the glory of our Savior? When I call the Worship team to come, to come up to the front. And we're going to sing a familiar song. A song we've sung a hundred times. But as you sing these words, let the glory of it fill your heart. The glory of the cross. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon His shoulder. It was my sin that held Him there. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Is this true of you today? Let's pray. 
Father, we, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love that was on display. We thank you that the, the wrath against our sin was poured out upon him, that we would have life, that we would be reconciled. I pray that you would put this, weigh this heavily on our hearts and help us to see the glory as we leave from here. May it not fade from our eyes. As we leave, help us to know your holiness more fully and in that to know more fully our need for Jesus and our need for the cross. Help us to know your love Keep us close to you, we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing How Deep the Father's Love.